0: You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today is Al Margolis of Sound of Pig Music and If Buana and countless more we're going to discuss.
1: Hey, Al. Hi, guys. Thanks for doing this.
0: Oh, thanks so Uh. much for coming on to talk to us. You know, my friend Shane English, who has been on the podcast a few times here, posted the the Sound of Pig Music uh, 1984 to 1990 cassette culture book, which catalogs all of your cassette releases from that period and, uh, with photos and for the compilations, you get a little track list. There's a, an interview with you in there, really awesome book. And so I picked one up Oops. and then we said, well, hell, we got to talk to Al. This is amazing. And <laughs> yeah. great. all yeah. got some, you know, sound of pig tapes that we love. And, and you were really in the trenches in the eighties doing this stuff. So, uh, that's, that's something we love to hear about and Al, you're still okay. producing and recording music so you you've constantly putting stuff up,
1: yes, yes, well, I've been you know running my pogus label for almost thirty years, uh which is you know mostly c d mm-hmm. stuff and um yeah, still putting stuff up on bandcamp uh I have i guess at this point embraced digital because no one buys anything, you know, so uh physical is kind of a pain for me, so you know, if someone wants to put something out, I'm happy to supply them with you know material mm-hmm. i've got a couple of people doing cassette stuff um. Uh, do you know tribe tapes in do you know if tribe tapes yeah. uh Ma- max is doing a, a actually a cdv issue of uh, a cassette came out on a uh, hal mcgee's causing uh no it actually wasn't it was just his when hal was doing stuff in the 90s or late 80s uh he's doing really iceless faceless which didn't really have any kind of release so you know so yeah still producing you know you never stop
2: <laughs> that's awesome
3: Heck yeah, that's great. And Hal, someone you worked with a lot back in the day, and I'm sure still are in contact with, how did you guys originally get in contact with each other back in the 80s? Uh,
1: I'm, I believe I probably was in contact with them because uh, Hal, uh, Hal and Debbie were running Cause and Effect, and they had Viscera, and so, you know, back then it was, you know, I think people sometimes, well, you know, depending on your age, but you know the internet's in a fucking amazing th- i can curse right if if need be if i you can you as can much edit as much as you like this is this is not people, a family uh friendly show, show so. okay yeah. people <laughs> you know forget that stuff was the mail and you had to read magazines so uh back then it was the first magazine i probably saw his name in was an op magazine which was uh out of olympia washington and uh i probably you know There was a little cassette column there called uh, Castanets, and I probably ran across him there or some other zine. Uh, And back then, it was just kind of like, okay, I'm looking for interesting music. I was just starting, and so these guys sounded interesting, and I probably wrote them, and then they probably wrote back, and they I may I might have bought a cassette from them, or they may have just we may have swapped at that point. And so, you know, just just like minds, I suppose, and you know, they were interested in my work, so we've just been friends since. You know, and so, you know, and it comes and go. I mean, we're still friends. I have, you know, and Hal's always pretty busy and he's a lot more on Facebook these days than I ever am. So, you know, but if something comes up, he's doing projects, he's always inviting people for, you know, for things and he's still there. I'm still there. And like I said, we've been just, again, him and, you know, like I have, I have not been in touch with Debbie for years, but, um, you know, those guys are great. And we, I was, Hal came here a couple of times, not, well, I was living in Brooklyn and then, uh, we were at his house a couple in times, when he was in Indianapolis. So uh, there, was, there was actually a great party one time at his house. It was like him and it was uh, Carl Howard of, you know, uh, uh, No Music and his audiophile tapes and Doug Walker and uh, Viscera, the guys from uh, Chicago. So it was just, uh, not Viscera, uh, Algebra Suicide. You know, you know, if you know their stuff. So yeah. uh, Manny Thiner was there from SSS Tapes in from Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Manny always brings a chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh yeah,
3: a- anytime he's brought up on the podcast, yes. somebody has, has a good little laugh for sure, for
1: sure. I, uh, I actually saw him, uh, he's in, where is he now? Oh, he's still in Pittsburgh. I saw him a couple times uh, in the last few years. We did some tours out there and uh, Manny would show up and, you know, he was still, you know, Manny. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I
2: love these regions colliding. Oh, yeah.
3: But I mean, back then, yeah, I think of cause and effect and sound of pig and big body parts. Really, this cassette, you know, as the term, the cassette culture. And you guys were really spearheading something really exciting at the time. How did you get to the point where you're reading a cassette column in a magazine and want to contact people for? A label. Where, where, where was that planted for you, pre starting of Pig? Uh,
1: probably. Well, you know, I was sort of. I was playing in a. I was playing in a rock band, and I was sort of interested in always sort of interested in stranger things. I remember in, okay, now this is, you know, this starts dating. I remember like 1970, 71 circus magazine and they would have like Zapper and mothers, you know, like weasels rip my flesh and they're going, that looks like a really cool record. And so I started down that path, you know, ex- experimental rock type of stuff. And, uh, you know, early eighties, uh, there was, there was a Soho news. There was in New York city, there was a grand street, which which where I, picked up Op for the first time, and I think I heard about Op through, like, Soho News, which was, you know, or uh, the New York Rocker, because the, the magazines would write about other magazines and stuff. So I think the first cassette or two I actually bought, bought were, uh, like, sub-pop stuff. Like, there was some really interesting sub-pop cassettes, and I still have those. are great, man. There's some, like, fucking great stuff and that stuff. But, you know, more, like, more, you know, rock stuff, but, like, pre-Hunting Lodge bands on there. And, oh, yeah. uh yeah. Uh, so I just, you know, I just started reading this column and he's and i was kind of looking for out type of stuff i suppose and so all of a sudden i was like oh this sounds really cool so i wrote to, so i think the first person i ever wrote to in terms of cassette people was uh george smith of senseless hate uh they were a ba- uh, uh label and i mean senseless hate was his project i think that was the label name they released early smirsch and okay. he had this really so the label was like his project was really kind of pretty cool and then um his tapes would be like one side would be Smirsh and experimental stuff. And the other side would be like total hardcore, you know? So it was (laughs) these really kind of funky, you know, comp tapes. And once, you know, so, so basically I started buying cassettes from people. And then at one point it was like, okay, I need to start my own label because, you know, and even then tapes were $2, $3, you know, and postage. And it was like, you know, it's not a big deal, but once you start down that rabbit hole, it's like, Oh, I need more. I need more. And so if Mm -hmm. I, if I start a label then I can trade, Cause you know, it was always in the thing, you know, set $2 <laughs> or trade, Yep. you know? Yep. So, you know, so this, again, this is probably uh well, the label started 84. So it was probably 82, 81, 82. I just started buying some stuff from people and got interesting. And then it's just kind of like, you know, like, so kind of spiraled off, like, Ooh, and, you know, and you write and, and, you know, I have all my magazines still with all the little check marks over time. Like, Ooh, write this yeah. person, <laughs> ooh, write this person. <laughs> And a matter, matter of fact, just so you know, the people I live with, so my wife and I have shared uh, a house first in Brooklyn, now where we live, for another couple for 30 plus years. I met them through the tape thing. They had a oh, project. Really? I wrote them. Wow. We met. We, they were living in Brooklyn. I was moved to Brooklyn. We met. We've been friends and co roommates for thirty over 30 years, so... There is a good thing that comes out of it besides just music. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> yeah.
3: and, and it, and, but it really is these these lifelong connections yeah, and yeah. and and like you said, sometimes you you may go there's chunks of time where you aren't in touch, and then all of a sudden you 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 meet up again or you reconnect, and it just becomes it's like it never. Yeah, passed, yeah it comes which back we so love. naturally, we, you know, and we and we love mm-hmm. that, and yeah. we've been finding that too. Doing this reconnecting with people or people that we've had on then connect with someone else who they hadn't connected with for a while. Then it, it just sort of
1: goes from there. So it's been great. One of the guys I play with fairly regularly now, uh, Walter Wright is a a project. We have Elkabong, just a duo. Uh, I met Walter. He was, he used to buy sound of pig cassettes. And then I met him in like 87 or 88. He ran something called a small computer arts network. And it was a festival they had in Philadelphia. So I went down to Philly. I was invited. I stayed with John Hudak. Play with John yes. and Charles Cohn for like the, the performance didn 't see Walter again for until early 2000 or maybe about 2010. met him at this little festival in maine and then we've been and he had a gallery in Lowell, Massachusetts, the home of. You know, just down what? the block, basically from a triple R records and, 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 records, and then uh, <laughs> and then, you know, we've been playing ever since. So even again, a 30, 25 year gap of meeting someone and not yep. even writing, which is mm-hmm. like, oh, Walter, cool. Nice hey. to see you.
3: It's the best. <laughs> that, that is really the best. Hey, speaking of records, was he someone you were in contact with early on?
1: Yeah, I was, actually, and uh, I think I must have sold him some stuff. I didn't buy that much from him, as, as far as I know, but again, I wasn't... It's funny, I wasn't really buying stuff. It was much more... If I couldn't trade, you know, I really it was wasn't... More the tra- yeah. It was more trading. I was trading, trading with, not less with yeah. Ron, but just in general. My entire collection is basically trading with people. But um, it's funny, we actually... We were doing shows at this little this squat in... The lower east side i mean it was like you know where, where people were like homesteading the pioneers where mm-hmm. the you know and so it was uh, it was the alchemical theater i believe it was called and basically ran power in from a extension cord o- off of the uh the light pole outside and so we actually had ron as one of our as uh i guess it was uh i think it was due process or maybe it was a mel bolio but he came okay. and, and, and one of the things i just love is like so i'm introducing him like you know okay and here from you know boston massachusetts is uh Ron Lassard, or whatever, and he goes, and he just kind of gives me this look. Uh-huh. Lowell,
3: Lowell. <laughs> I can, I can, I can see it. I can picture it.
1: <laughs> and so I didn't see, you know. And so I, you know, we started doing uh, when, you know. So Walter kept having these festivals and uh, this uh of, con- uh little X fest in in Lowell in his gallery for a bunch of years. And I never got down to Ron's because Ron apparently was always you kind of had to tell the store wasn't always open. You had to call him. Right. Ron had left years ago to to Lowell. Like we go, we, we always walk by to Ron and see Ron, and you know, just a guy that like, you know, has been through the wars. You know, so oh, it's, yeah. Uh, so it's so you know, just kind of going in there with him, and the store is great. If you have, I don't know if you've ever been, and it's just sort oh, of, yeah. yeah. Hi, Ron. How you doing? <laughs> or, you know, when it's Ron, just. Oh yeah, just is
3: <laughs> yeah. I think you've been through the mm-hmm. wars. I think that is absolutely uh, the way to put it for sure. So when did If wanna start, was it concurrent with Sound of Pig? Uh,
1: yeah, actually, so the, uh, matter of fact, so the first track, I mean, when I tell people, like it was born on uh, New Year's Day, 1984. That was the first If wanna track was recorded that day, a uh, piece called Slave Ant Raid, which then became the title of the first compilation I did. So it was firstly, you know, first just started recording stuff, then the label started, and then, you know, it was kind of from there, and... We did, I mean, I did my work, so I was playing in this band with this, you know, and where this all sort of started, and my bandmate wasn't interested in really an experimental stuff. We were just playing like sort of, you know, post-punk, you know, pops, sort of weird stuff, and, uh, but I had the equipment. I basically had, you know, the four-track, because we had a band, we had a band, the band went through singers, and well, we had the same drummer, and we kept going through singers, and after a while, I was like, you know, fuck this. You know, so we bought, I bought a four track, we bought a drum machine, uh, we bought a couple of synthesizers. Um, matter of fact, we have, I still still have my Moog Rogue, which we use for like the bass at first. And then we sort of, we started recording like more, again, more pop type things or just, you know, in songs as opposed to experimental stuff. But all the equipment was used to be in my house. And so one day we just kind of like, or again, basically New Year's day was like, Oh, let's do something that I want to do. You know, and so on my little X15 four stacks, we started. I started, and it's which which also still is here somewhere and it still works. Uh But but wow. doesn't doesn't go into reverse or fast forward, but it still works. And, and mm-hmm. when I when I when I rip tapes for like you know to like digitize them, that's what I use. So you wow. know they, they built equipment to last, man. I'm telling you.
3: <laughs> it was different back then. So what were you, what other stuff were you using? I think of. If Buana as relatively, I'm not sure what the word is. Primitive, especially back then the the sound seemed very there. It didn't seem like there was a ton of equipment. I guess is what I'm.
1: No, basically I was at. basically so basically I was using uh so again I was according to the Fostex X15 which was a multi-track um I was using a Rogue I had a, uh the uh Dramatics drum machine. Uh, a Kawai S612, which was a key, you know, just a, you know, sort of digital or sort of pre-digital analog key. It was actually, I guess, an analog keyboard. It wasn't even digital. Um, and then I had my uh, guitar and a violin and trumpet and I had a shitty little uh, tape, de- you know, tape, uh, you know, uh, delay machine. And I had a uh, couple of effects and the sound sort of back then particularly was it was it was a, it was a Ross uh, phase buzz phase pedal and you know wah pedal for like uh and and this echo box and that was kind of what i recorded on and played with and you know and over time started buying like you know a couple of delays and you know boland and whatever was coming out and in new york you know the thing in new york at that time was it was so much equipment just starting to happen like digital was just coming in so you could every week in the village voice it was either Manny's or Sam Ash would have a sale on, oh, yeah, we're getting rid of this, you know, because we got a newer, a better newer synthesizer. So you could buy all this stuff for, like this gear for like really cheap. I and mean, I had like, a, you know, for a long time, I had my Korg uh, uh, sampler and there was the little drum pads you could buy that were little, with little chips in them. Things that people kill for now. That like my friend <laughs> sold sold a lot of his gear for me at one point a few years ago, just because people wanted the chips from these drum machines. I mean, I think they were like Roland drum pads. And it would just these blue things and you could hit them and it had little sound cards. You'd you know, little chunk them out, you'd chunk them back in and Yeah, so it was pretty primitive. And like, you know, it was it was fun. And you know, sometimes the longer you go and the more stuff you use, it gets harder to make weirder sounds because you get so you get you get professional. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, well, you know. you get proficient. You get proficient. How about that? Mm, right. Yes. That's not always a good thing. Yes.
2: <laughs> Trick yourself into discovery. <laughs>
0: How did you go about uh, sort of f- figuring out how to make tapes and, and how did you start assembling tapes? Like what was the the basis for just doing it and what were your first steps in starting a Cassette Label? Well,
1: like I said, you know, like I said, one day I was just like, oh, again, I need to, you know, make tapes because I want to trade with people. So the first thing, so I I just started doing my own stuff and then I, I put a call. And again, in those days, you know, and like now, you can put a call out, for like, you know, I'm, you know, uh, I'm interested in doing cassette, and so probably an op magazine. I probably wrote some people, and I probably wrote to op and said, "Oh, I'm doing a cassette," or thinking of doing a cassette compilation. And people sent me stuff, and some was invitation, and you know, there was that moment in the beginning where, and this is probably and probably this was key. was like it was the moment where it was like, okay, you can go to a you know a, a cassette making plant, and you know, for a hundred for a hundred cassettes it was two hundred dollars, and I'm thinking you know, if I do this, these things, you know, I'm looking to trade them. I probably wasn't going to sell them. It was kind of like, you know, if I do this, I'm going to have two tapes and that's it. You know? So that was the day I said, okay, I'll just buy a couple of tape decks. And then I don't you know, I don't even remember where I decided to get cause I look at my tapes and they were all those bulk tapes. So I must've started pretty early finding the bulk tape guys, you know, cause I don't think I made them anything out of like anything really, you know, fancy, classy tapes, but you know, so, there, but though again, in New York, you could just, you know, you could do a you could call or write to and, you know, just, you know, and I used to, I remember just what, what I do remember is always walking around in the city. Cause I worked in Manhattan and I lived in like Queens or Brooklyn and less like coming home with like, you know, a box or two of like cassettes, you know, blank cassettes in one thing, uh, cassette cases in the other and kind of just walking home on a train on a train with like, okay, there's a hundred, 200 cassettes and you know, you'd assemble them at home. So, uh. It really was just kind of the decision that was, again, if I had gone with the, you know, which again, most people are doing, I guess these days is going to the manufacturers. It would have just, it would have killed me. It would never have happened. The label would never have happened. Uh, I don't remember if I asked anybody. The one thing I do remember, which was really embarrassing is okay. So when I bought my X-15 from like Sam Ash or Manny's, apparently they did not have the correct power supply. So they just gave me some power supply and all my tapes, the beginning, I think you hear it on some of this uh, my stuff and the first compilation. There's these little ticks and like just little clicks, and it's because uh-huh. the power supply was not correct. And it <laughs> took me so it took me a couple of releases to find that out. And like I think I, I forget who it was maybe it was Walls a Genius so one of those guys. Someone goes, you know, you're you're getting these clicks in there. You might want to check your power supply and sure as shit i did and okay you know went back and i got the right supply and it's been ever oh, fine wow. ever since but it really was like they just i guess they wanted to sell me something and they didn't actually have <laughs> so it's really like so it's just okay so my first couple of cassettes you know cassettes were working it out you know was it like <laughs> yeah. figuring it out on your own and maybe asking people but you know they said it, the tape decks are there it's just i guess you know it wasn't you know i think the hardest part was probably trying to figure out how to make a master you know like okay how do i mix these things together and you know Take this tape deck. And, and, you know, and these are the days when, you know, the le- there was the legends of uh, R. Stevie Moore and uh, the Cyclones and, like, all the guys who went tape deck to tape deck and figured that out, you know. And, you know, you can do that and make noise, but when you're doing that and making music, you know, making music, you know, songs, like, I, I, I've, I've never figured that one out. Like, how do you actually, you know, sync it correctly? You know, like, <laughs> get your guitar with your drums and, you know, make a song where you're actually playing from two actual tape decks. You know, where there's that lag in there? So it's amazing, like, what people did.
0: It really is. <laughs> and, uh, what were your steps? Because the, the artwork of Sound of Pig is fairly crappy. distinctive. <laughs>
1: oh, it's like <laughs> crappy. What was... Oh, no way. I, I <laughs> love, I love oh, it's the way so the aesthetic. tapes look. Yeah. But. Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah. I've, had, I've had complaints and, no, and jokes not. over the years. So.
0: <laughs> so, what you know, nowadays we've got printers and scanners and photoshop and all this stuff but 1984 what making a tape cover what was your process
1: okay well first of all that was the other thing i did is so, so basically i did do a diy in the sense of i mean we bought early on i bought a, a copy machine i had like a rico copy Amazing. machine uh, black nice. and, you know it was basically black and white that's why everything was you know uh, you know the copy machine black and white that's why the paper was different colors so each mm-hmm. tape would look a little differently you know and you tried to keep and for a long time i tried to keep you know, like the haters was always green and this one was always this other one. So it was, there yeah. tended to be, you know, standard colors for each release that was there, but, uh, it was just cut and paste, you know, it was, uh, I mean, again, I was no artist. So I was always very happy to ask, you know, if you wanted your cover and you want to send me to art, please do. I would appreciate that. But if not, you know, it was just cutting crap out of magazines and, uh, you know, just pasting them on there. And, and in the, and in the early days, I used to do the, uh, the cassette labels were, you know, again, Xeroxed, cut, you know, shaved out the little section in the middle there by, you know, a little <laughs> razor blade and taped and, and pasted them on. You know, so if wow. you have really early, if you have ones with pasted on, you know, things not like the labels, you have the super duper early original, you know, ones, man. So, you know, I don't sure if it's worth anything more than that other than my labor. <laughs> <laughs> But the copy machine, again, the copy machine and the tape decks were just like really mm-hmm. just, you know, running your own, you know, running your own studio that way in terms of manufacture. And then it was as, as many as you needed or didn't need, you know, instead of and going were, getting a hundred.
2: And you were dubbing tapes at work as well as at home.
1: I was dubbing. I was like, you know, I'd have, I think it was two or three decks at one job and then uh, at home there was two or three. And, you know, I'd be, I would be sitting around my wife after work watching TV and the taste of dubbing in the other room and like, and it'd be like, you know, if there was three decks, there was three different tapes going. And, you know, and then I'd. At the commercial on TV, you'd hear pop, 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 and I'd run into the other room and like, you know, flip the tapes and, you know, I mean, I, in the heyday, I mean, this is really, I, I guess, weirdly amazing. Like, I, I used to keep, you know, I keep records and back when probably 85, 86, 87, I must have done 3,000 tapes a year. Oh, wow. I believe it. I was yeah, going to ask course, how busy you must have been. And... I, uh, you know, and, and it was like, I think one year I looked at the, you know, we count, I count there's like, thir- I did, I must've gone through 3,300 tapes and just, and just all hand dubbing.
0: You kept the catalog <laughs> in print while the label was running too, right? So if someone wanted one of the earlier yeah, yeah, tapes, yeah. you would, you would yeah. make a new copy of it.
1: Yeah. Everything was always in print. I think the that... only, actually the only one that never, actually the only one that wasn't was, uh. I forgot what number it is off top. The the Pete Children tape that was specific, and that was specifically he wanted thirty or forty, and he you know he made the plastic case for that thing. So when that ran out, Mm -hmm. that was done. But everything else, yeah, that stayed in print, and you know, someday you can still get them. Sometimes, actually,
0: just recently (laughs) got that Pete Children tape after looking for it for years. So oh, uh, really? That's
1: that's great one, man. Yeah, that's that's oh, they're
3: they're really really cool project. And, and most labels these days, anything we do generally has a limit. We 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 have a number that we're going to do and generally don't. If we're going to do it again, it's a repress or whatever. Uh-huh. But it feels like back then, a lot of you guys were keeping it open-ended. Do you recall the thinking behind that? Did you, just, you just always, you're like, well, someone wants it. Let's, yeah, why not? Why not have them yeah. be able to get it?
1: Well, I think I wanted, you know, I think I was trying to, Because part of it was a, a, I mean, from my mind a little, there was a rebellion against like, you know, either the collectors thing, but even less the collectors, but Mm -hmm. like, you know, this was stuff you of interesting, you know, I mean, again, if you make 40, I mean, you know, there was record companies that made thousands of things. This is weird shit that like people wanted. So make it available to anyone who wants it, you know, so I would make a bunch of copies for the artists and I'd make, you know, I, so I think it turned out that most of the stuff I did, was probably, you know, again, that year I was looking for instance, that 3,300, I figured out I sold, I sold a third. I doubt it was even that much. Gave away a third, traded a third, you know, and it was promo copies, radio copies. So there wasn't even any thinking about it. It It's like, yeah, new tape, keep making them, sell the next tape and make more. And then, you know, and then as people wanted it and, you know, it's like, so and, you know, and so the collector thing over the years, is, and, and again, I get it now. I mean, I get why people only do X amount of tapes because, you know, it's, there's X amount of people that want it. And, you know, and it took me a long time for now to think, why the fuck do people want to make, you know, there's CDs, there's this other stuff. And of course I realized, oh, it's like, it is like the old days. It's way too expensive and no one gives a shit. You know, so I have a garage full of CDs, you know, thousands of CDs from my label and my own stuff. And it's like, you know, you might as well just, Keep it simple, keep it cheap, keep it easy and, you know, be in touch with people, you know, so.
0: Well, well, yeah,
3: and I think that's still a lot of the philosophy nowadays with our with us and our people is that it's it is still DIY. It's still doing it yourself. It's still being in control of that. And I think you said it in one of your interviews, support your independence. It's still that it's still you're in control of your destiny when you're dubbing your tape. Or you, or you, you have your friend with the great tape deck who you give the master to, so they can dub it for yes. you. Know, these types of things work right. out really well. <laughs> but it's, but also I noticed in on the, it, uh, what's really great is everyone should check out the, the Sound of Pig, the Discogs page because when you click on the the picture, the image, there's an old catalog. That oh, yeah, comes yeah, up. Yeah. It's like 10, 10 or fifty. Oh it's my like god, we have we've been devouring it. Ca- we downloaded pigs? it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's so great <laughs> seeing your descriptions from back Love it. then. Yeah, and there. But there was even something, and I can't remember. I think it's an Ifbuana tape where it says it, this was on Cause and Effect for a few years. Now it's on Sound of Pig. So were you guys also doing that? We're you like, yeah, you put it out for a little bit. Then actually, now I'll, I will, we'll throw it on Sound of Pig. Now, did you guys? Was that something you guys were doing back then?
1: No, not really. It Just they were actually interested in that, so uh, that that was uh, yeah. but beware, beware the sleeping squid. And so I gave that to them. Yep. They asked me to do a cassette, so where I, I you know said want me to do it, you know. But however it worked, you know. Sometimes like right. you want to put something out, so they did it. Uh, And then when cause and effect kind of went away, you know, it's just like you know I decided I'd just keep it in, in the catalog. And I think this, I think actually, but going backwards that way is a, a brash pussy from a uh, house yeah. cassette. I think that had, Dog he had originally master. put out, and he gave it to me, and then he put it out again later on. So. You know, and Hal's been doing a lot of that stuff. He's been reissuing, you know, he did, a, he did and slip of mine and he did a bunch of the stuff we had done as collaboration. So, you know, back then it was, you know, uh, there was some stuff we did as co-releases, uh, less with cause and effect, did some stuff with like harsh reality, you know, Chris Finney's label. Um, we did some, you know, co-releases of stuff we had done together. So, you know, it was all pretty loose and, you know, who, you know, proprietary, uh, you know, you know, it's, it's about who, you know. Who's got the better mailing list? No, no. We just we just, just send stuff out and send stuff around, you know. So, uh, you know, and you know, again, going back to now, it's like, you know, like I say, at first I couldn't think, why are people making cassettes, and then it was kind of like, oh, okay, and then it was also kind of like, and why are they going to pressing plants, and then when I started, you know going into, like, trying to buy tape decks and buying shitty tapes is like, oh, that's why they're going to people who actually manufacture them, which, of course, then makes it way more sense to just do a limited edition. Because, you know, when you're laying out four and five dollars a tape, you know, like I said, back then, mm-hmm. I mean, shit, I could buy blank tapes and the cases, at you know, it was under a dollar, you know, for 60s. Yeah. And, you know, it was like, you know, so now it's like, you know, it's not under a and, dollar and the tapes are funky and the decks are crappy. And, you know, uh, you know, when Hal had to, at one point... Hal had, uh, thought about restarting the cassette, a uh, cassette label. And I remember him, and this is like in the last eight or 10 years and him buying two different, I think it was Yamaha dubbing decks, you know, from like through Amazon or Best Buy or something like that. And like, he said they both crapped out right away and they were eating tapes and it was, and it was $300 and it was kind of like. Yeah, they're so and, expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, uh, and, and, you know, so I remember him just returning them and it's going, you know, it's like, okay, I'm not going to be doing this. This is stupid. <laughs>
2: Did you reach a point when your tape supply started drying up?
1: No, back then it wasn't a problem. There was, uh, I, I think these, I forget who the guys were. This, it wasn't it wasn't disc makers, but no, it was a place in Brooklyn. I would just go out to, actually, we were in the city for a long time and I would go after work and just pick up the tape, but no, it was never a problem. You know, but this is going through uh, 89, 90, I guess. And then I stopped doing it. So I don't know what happened. And like I said, you know, some of these guys are still in business. Um, you know, I guess they were always making tapes because supposedly uh, prisoners, jail, you know, that's how, you know, that's where the tape stuff is like. That's where the business was for a long time where they, you know, the the, ca- the cases with no, t- uh, no screws. Yeah, clear cases, cases, no screws. Yeah, no screws because, mm-hmm. you know, couldn't hide anything in it, couldn't, you know. So those guys are still making tapes. I just, you know, I think they're, I think they're st- you know, it's just like the vinyls, like struggling with like, you know, how much, you know, not enough plants. And I think maybe the tape stuff stock is just not so good. But we're we're
3: still prisoners of tapes and and, and as, but prison but sucks. also also churches would do a lot of the dubbers are yeah. a lot of people who yeah. got dubbers have come from old church sales
2: sermons okay. and other things of yeah. that nature so the church
3: yeah. and prison of tapes yes. we still we go. we're Love behind you. those bars still <laughs> yeah.
1: on our knees meditation. Any, any way you can get tapes you know it's like these days is any way you can get tapes you know it's like you know matter of fact some of the stuff i was doing for people at one point was I was cannibalizing my, you know, cause I have a bunch of stuff with just things I worked on and my own stuff. And like, you know, it had been the tapes and okay, this is like, you know, mixes from 15 years ago. These things are out as something else. I just started taking those tapes and okay, well, you know, people want cassettes and you know, these are the tapes, my tape deck likes. So you just, you know, people, you know, it, you know, you know, IDM theftable, right? I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, he's always looking for tapes and always, you know, making his label from things that he just finds. So anything you can find, in any junk shop, any place. Back then also there was, a, oh, you know, so there was the, again, there was the bulk tape people who, and I forget, I think it was disc makers by the, who were actually still in business as CDs people and uh, vinyl. But I think it was disc makers I used to buy cassettes from. But uh, then there was also like uh, Uncle Steve's, which was on Canal Street in the city in the 80s. And Uncle Steve's had, that's where you get your good cassettes. <laughs> you know, then you go down and I buy my, you know, t- 20 boxes in twenty thirty uh, you know, Max L's or stuff like that, you know, the Chrome, you know, I mean, I, you know, the bulk stuff was Chrome too. And like I said, that was always fine. I never had, as a matter of fact, the stuff I bought recently over you know, the last few years, you know, way more problems than I ever had in the eighties. You know, I lost more tapes, but again, I'm not sure if it's the tapes, my deck, some combination of, you know, it was actually, so actually, uh, uh, because you'll appreciate this, of course. Um, I was in Riga on tour a few years ago, and I popped in, and, and i going to play a gig there, and I, as a part of a festival, I popped in some record shop, because I'm you know, walking around town, and the guy who's running the shop uh, says, oh, I'm going to be at the show later, nice to, you know, very nice to meet you, and I have a little tape label. His label was, he had these tapes from like the 70s, and, and, the, and so basically the premise was, he made the tapes, whatever tapes he was making, and as the tapes flaked and you know, fell apart, that was part of the process. Right. You know, so, oh, yeah. when, you know, so the music yeah. kind of distorted and deteriorated, and I, I just loved mm-hmm. it. It was like I had such a great time. You know, him telling me that that was like,
3: oh, yeah, <laughs> I love that. And unfound sounder that's something, we, that's something we talked to Jeff German about as well. Mm-hmm. Just that great thing, even when the tape disintegrates, there's still, it's still there, and there's that is just part of the 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 beast of the of the tape yeah the tape disintegrating
2: is so much better than a cdr dis- disintegrating yeah
1: yeah and skipping yeah like i'll take a worn flaking. worn tape for sure <laughs> well that's exactly. the other thing i can never you know of all the of all the technologies i can never stand the thought of cdrs you know and as a release or anything like that it's just yeah. like you know it's just like no nah, no nah, you know that's why i've gone like you know digitally partially because like i don't want to do cdrs and 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 you know I got tapes in the house, 30, 40 years old, that you know lasted a lot longer than any CDRs ever lasted. So, yeah. uh, and you can play mm-hmm. them, you know. And as long as you know, tape deck doesn't eat them, they sound good. And the CDRs. <laughs> <laughs> I bet mean, I had a CDR one time. Oh, I, this is a this was a DIY CDR though. From but I had a CDR from Chris Finney was doing a project. Uh, tape germ. It was like people would send uh, some tracks, and you'd you'd kind of choose them and mix them and send it back to Chris. So. At one point he sent, you know, you'd get a master and, you know, you get your couple of copies. And I didn't look at this one in my old car. I didn't look at this copy. I, I take the CDR, hadn't listened to it, stuffed it in the, you know, CD player. And like two seconds later, the thing pops out and it's clear. All, like the,
3: ate all, off. All, the, no. all the
1: flake and the, my car radio and cd player was trashed ever since ever ever since it was like you know once in a while it would play sometimes the speaker would play sometimes the flakes would still come out i was sitting there throwing pieces of paper in there can i get this
3: shit?
1: Out? So, so be careful if you ever put in a cd on your car stereo look at it first
3: wow <laughs> but, one thing that's I think so great about Sonic Pick is the wide range of artists you work mm-hmm. with. Everyone from haters to, you know, working with a lot of like X Ray U- Pop, X Ray Pop, and then some of the UK guys like Grey Wolves yeah. and 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 Ramla and Broken Flag. It, it, we always talk about the time before a lot of the lines were drawn or bo- or you know just things were boxed genre. in. Yeah, yeah. It was more yeah. this open idea of underground sounds were you just always interested in a wide range of sound
1: well that's how it you know i mean so that's that's what i kind of came into with the fact that there was this wide range like like i said you know senseless hate had you know smirsch on one side and hardcore on the other and so a lot of the comps really were like that and so that was sort of what i you know the the teething and particularly for particularly the compilations that i did you know early ones those were all sort of all kinds of mixes and You know, I guess over time, I did end up more noisy, a little more, you know, in the same type of thing. But yeah, it's like, you know, if it interested me, that's what I wanted. It wasn't like, I wasn't like, I'm only doing industrial, I'm only doing this. It was like, if I liked your tape, whether it's you sent me something or I heard you and I wrote you, you know, if I wanted it, you know, I'd do it. So it didn't really make a difference. But, you know, but it did, it did harden up over time, you know, even for sound to pig, I suppose a little bit, but you know, it's like, it it just became so much stuff out there. You know? But my, 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 some of my favorite early shit is the stuff that's just so indescri- indefinable, indescribable, you know, uh, girls on fire, you, you know, uh, you know, x-ray pop and, you know, just such, just, just such weird buckets. People who couldn't play at all. Cause I could, you know, I, I had taken guitar lessons. I played guitar, I played in the band. I was semi-competent, you know, and stuff. And there were people who were just making And that was the best part. Like you could put out shit from people who were just incompetent, you know, I don't want to say incompetent, semi-competent or struggling, right. you know, and struggling. And because this wasn't going to be, <clears throat> I'm not trying to make money. This isn't, you know, this is like mm-hmm. weird. This is trying to contact people, you know, and and really, you know, back then the thing was like, even if you just had one person you traded a tape with, you know, that's it, man. Like that, you made a connection with another yeah. person, you know, it's like it had nothing to do with, you know, anything. So putting anything that was weird or anything that sounded interesting, out was great. It was like, you know. Yeah, it's too bad it did or it did harden up over time. But you know there was, you know, there was so much stuff over time. It just became so many people recording stuff, and I think after a while, you you know, people just send you things, and you know, and even towards the end, uh, it was probably a little less choice of mine, and more people maybe sending me things and and liking what they send. So you know, early on it was like, oh, I like your stuff. You want to do a tape? And then people go, oh, you know, would you want to do a tape? And But in the end, I think it became a bit more people just sending me stuff. And if I liked it, I would do it. But it was a little less, you know, because towards the end, I mean, I was doing, I think there was one point I probably was releasing a tape, you know, it probably was an average of about almost a tape every week or two, you know, in some Sure. So, you know, so, you know, so it's, you know, it got a little less uh, selective, I suppose, on my part, or at least a little less, you know, my choice as opposed to things are coming in. Oh, this is cool.
3: Right, (laughs) right.
2: You know you you seem so open to people reaching out to you, like you've even said already, like, "Oh, just you know, hit me up." like has that just always been kind of part of your personality, like willing to interact like that?
1: I don't know. i I, I think I think I think within the context of the music and the stuff like like you know, there's part of me that's like our total hermit, and you know, I you know, mm. but I'm happy to talk to people and especially about this kind of stuff and in terms of the music and the art, yeah, sure, you know, it's like this is this is what it was about. It really was about connecting and being in touch with people. You know, I mean, over years, I've become more codrally and, you know, isolated and insulated.
3: One of the one of the one of the greatest artists you worked with on Sound of Pig. <laughs> also is,
2: elusive and mysterious.
3: Absolutely. Is Minoy, of course, sadly had passed a, a while back, but you worked with him a lot in the 80s. Do you recall how that connection came about and do you recall what it was like working with him?
1: Well, it's funny because, you know, because there is that, well, so so there's that batch of about 10 or 12 tapes from like 20, 200 to, he sent them all to me. I mean, I, you know, again, mm-hmm. I never met, I never met Manoy. He you was, never met him? Uh, I never met him. He was in, uh, in my travels, which, you know, were, were sometimes more than others. I tended to go to uh, the Bay Area. So I'd actually go and hang out with DOS and BCO and those guys and, uh, uh, you know, the haters when he was up there and crawling with tarts. Uh, I'd never met Manoy. He was in, I guess, Torrance with, I guess, Southern right. Cal, right? So. Mm-hmm but it was, it was always just male, you know? And I knew people who like uh, Dave Prescott and Zan used to speak to him all the time. And, uh, Zan Hoffman. And, uh, you know, it was just like a male, got a male thing. And so uh, I had done three or four tapes. And then at one point he just said, Oh, you want to do a whole batch? And I was like, "Oh, Manoy, sure.
3: <laughs> oh, so you did those all in one batch? yeah, God, He just
1: sent me that whole thing. Yeah. Was yeah like, he said, you want to do a whole so bunch cool. of things? And so he just sent me, so I'd done before that. It had been like, uh, uh, pretty young Negro man and Johnny Switch, but There would have been occasional other tapes with the, either his stuff or collaborations of him with others. But yeah, at one point he just said, "Do you want to do like the whole bat? this whole batch?" And I said, "Sure." You know, and and actually, it's funny because of of all the sound, I it's probably not my only favorite tape, but one of my favorite SOP tapes is the is Space Shot, which is a uh, Dave Prescott and Manoy, and that's just like this great great tape of just Manoy. You know, with his Manoy is because it then it's just him, basically speaking, and like just telling this, this, these stories from I think it was from some uh, almost like uh, psychological book or psychiatr- you know, just psychiatric uh, case studies, and he's just being Manoy speaking, and Dave's got his really sparse synthesizer electronics should just kind of go in the background. If you, I don't know if you've heard that one, but that's a that's one of my favorites. So Manoy has made it to my top ten. And sound a pig. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's awesome.
2: Yeah.
1: So
3: around 1990 you started Pogus, is that correct? Is that about the year?
1: Yeah, yeah, 89 or so.
3: What was the thought behind the change of
1: direction? The cassette thing was sort of for my end was sort of winding down. Even the whole sort of cassette network at that point felt like it was petering out. Everybody who i you know, was either doing other things or it just seemed to be hitting a dry spell. The magazines were kind of going away and you know, in the radio who never liked cassettes back then anyway, were, weren't doing much. So but I had been friends become friends with Dave Prescott and uh you know, we played together. He did a bunch of cassettes for Sound of Pig. Um I would do his radio show a lot up in Boston and uh both of our interests I, my interest, I started getting really into contemporary classical stuff and like, you know, just, you know, just Stockhausen and Zanakus, the whole crew of stuff. And at that time it was sort of the transition between um CDs and records and you know, Luigi Nono had died, and Morton Feldman had died, and all the people I was really interested in. And of course, the music was starting to come out on CD. They'd been, they'd been ignored for years as a release of anything—no records, nothing—and so, kind of, part of it was kind of like Dave and I were going. We, we kind of the joke was sort of we wanted to call it the "Before They Die" series, you know, so to get in <laughs> touch with you know composers we liked and you know put out their records before they croaked, so they could enjoy them. But you know, so that was kind of the impetus uh, from there, and. Dave had the contacts with uh, Mickey Haswolf, you know. So for the, the Lindblad one, and uh, Dave Dave knew Rutman up there in the Boston area because he was up there, and uh, he'd been to, I guess he'd been to England. He met Eddie, you know, Eddie Prevost from AMM. So that was kind of why we put those things out to begin with, and then and then Dave and Jen Ken Montgomery were partners in Generations Unlimited with uh, with a silent partner, kind of at Schnitzler, and in the end, Dave, I think. You know, Dave and Ken and those guys had a bit of a falling out because the folk they wanted the focus to be more on that stuff and less on Pogus. So whatever it was, you know, Pogus ended up being my baby in the end. So, you know, after the four LPs and it was just a change of where I was going and listening to musically. So.
3: Were you con- aware, though, that really Santa Pig sort of ends around 1990 or so but really into the mid 90s cassettes are exploding in in the noise underground were you aware of that at all or were you are were you more in this more modern contemporary classical world and didn't what didn't really see what was going on as far as that went
1: yeah i didn't see what i did not see and did not know anything uh i mean partially because so in 92, I started working in New World. So so part of so I kind of fell out of the whole thing. And like I said, a lot of the magazines and the zines, the people I was in, you know. So I think, it, you know, it's sort of this generation thing, like, you know, where, because even, you know, sometimes when I hear about, like, the early generation of cassette stuff, late 70s, like, I didn't know most of those people. And then maybe they'd gone into L, you know, and there wasn't so many people. And then there was this one big blast. And again, it was Op and Sound Choice and Option and all these zines, Fact Sheet 5 and, you know, whoever else was doing mm-hmm. stuff, and then whether it was just all the people I knew stopped doing stuff, or kind of like got burnt, or you know, just wherever it was going. So there was a tailing down, but yeah, you know, when I found out there was, I mean, shit, it would have been five generations of cassette players, you know, going up and down. And matter I fact, Ken, Jen Ken was telling me one time, he I think it was in the late '90s, he had gone to like give some talk and like maybe do a show in Buffalo at the university up there. And it was like, and he met somebody, uh, some, I think it was a woman who was doing something about cassettes and like they, it sounded like they were talking at cross purposes. She didn't know anyone he was talking about and he didn't know anyone she was talking about. And because there wasn't the web at that point, or is very little, Mm. you know, this information wasn't there. So, you know, so, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, there's, you know, mid, Early two thousands, mid two thousands. There's the the people who know, you know, the young people who know about cassettes and like you know the eighties and the nineties. And so you know, you know, that's what's really interesting. Like, okay, all these people all of a sudden, like, who are these people? Like these twenty somethings getting in touch with me. You know, I love this. It's like holy shit. Like you know, because you know, forties and fifties old oh, people my age, they have no clue. You know, unless they're in, they, unless they were in it, they got no clue what was that about. And so you know, so. You know, so again, the cassettes are just a way of, you know, an easy way of being in touch and selling your music or, you know, getting your music and taking it to shows and getting gigs and stuff like that. But but yeah, it was I think the real, unless you were really paying attention, I think there was like sort of, you know, because the whole noise thing sort of passed by and it was a whole other, you know, thing. So, but again, I think there's been three or four generations, you know, iterations of cassettes. And so, you know. Oh yeah, and course, definitely.
3: For, and for us, you know, it was so much discovering the triple R catalog. <coughs> that was our, our generations. It starts that, with... that was our generation. sign a pig catalog. It was the, here's the triple R catalog,
2: blind catalog. And, yeah. and there was
3: no description. So yeah. you just had to go by the names. And it was, that's how we all started between that. And then, and the Mersbau Masana CDs on relapse. The, the, that was our, the end of the nineties is yeah. then when, when our generation discovered all this and then, you know, really is has continued on from there. Of course, there's always
2: yeah, uh, and it, but it transitioned to like the online forums and message boards and things yeah, after yeah. that. But but initially, it was all again underground the ca- catalogs. Yeah, yeah, it was
3: when we got in right at the end of yeah. catalogs, get getting the mail order catalog the dawn of the internet when...
2: Blindly sending money somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hoping so, for mail back. Yeah, so well,
1: it was, well, really, well, that was always the case anyway, even though it was an yeah. envelope, but it, it didn't mean like you were getting anything back. So, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it was, yeah, you know with yeah. the mail.
0: <laughs> yeah. Al, it seems like the zines of the time were very important and influential in you starting the label and getting in touch. But, uh, you know, some of the artists on the label, like GX and Minoy, were very involved in the mail art scene. Was that something that you partook in at all, or was that more tertiary?
1: uh maybe more tertiary i mean you know i guess once you send stuff in the mail you're participating in mail art but no i wasn't part of i mean again you know just you do flyers you do stuff and but and i love that I i have i have a major collection of things just well you know if you guys ever get out here at some point i should like show you like i have like i've been archiving stuff and like i have boxes i have i think i got it down to three boxes. i used to have five boxes of just Stuff. And I think I must have thrown shit out in the past w- doing moves and stuff. But I have, you know, BCO flyers, some annoy flyers and all kinds of stuff. So the mail art. And so, cool. I mean, that's such an amazing scene, man. It was like so, you know, and it was just, it was just part of it. It was like you were part of it by just being a cassette person because you were using the mail and depending on what you sent. And, you know, some people wanted, you know, participate in this mail. So yeah, uh, some people wanted stuff. Send me your stamper and we'll, and I'll make, you know, you know I don't know if you know who's, what was it the person named Yosuke Kone? Uh, mm-hmm. Japanese. And I, I never even knew if it was a man or a woman, but the person did these beautiful things on Japanese, like rice paper. And you would send your sticker or like, or your stamper, you know, so I had a sound of pig stamper, stamp it, send it to them. They would put it and you'd get these beautiful in the mail. It's just folded up Japanese rice paper with all these colorful stamps and like wow. from all these other people of just, you know, who had done their stampers. And so it was just, you just got stuff. So you were contrib- you were in mail art whether you wanted it to be or not. It's just some people were certainly more into it and you know that was their, one of their focuses.
3: And and you even discussed the yeah, you, you probably had some stuff that maybe you gotten rid of throughout the years, it goes away. You no, know, we've heard from people who were deeply involved in mail order and tape trading back then who were say, Oh, I you know, I would get tons of tapes from MB and I probably dubbed over some of those tapes. And we're sitting here like, like, we want to just like, like, we, we, just like uh. we can't believe we're, we're pulling our hair out thinking, but back then it, it just, that thought it was just a different, it was just this constant
1: motion. It was semi-precious. Right. Uh, absolutely, I never, I, I've, I've never dubbed over any, you know, tape I've gotten from somebody in nice. trade or anything. Good. So, you know, yeah. so those were all, you know, uh, <laughs> You know, I've dubbed them my shit. That I mean, not my, you know, if <laughs> of stuff, but you know, things that I've, you know, that are extra tapes or other right, crap. Right, but no, no, no. Right. Any, those are all, you know, because those are people's things. Those yeah. are archives. Those are things you, again, they were precious, valued not for the money. Is like, okay, here's the stuff. I mean, you know, and and and, I mean, that's the most amazing thing. Is like nobody could possibly have, the same collection. That's the most. And <laughs> no one. Yes, yeah. has we think, has. We think we about that all the co- time. You
2: can't be a completionist. It's almost no, impossible to be. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, because That's awesome. the I different
3: variations, the different one-offs that yeah. just s- someone sent that never got put out or whatever mm-hmm. for whatever reason.
1: And then the and people it's, with, it's, the st- and with the st- with this stuff now, like I go to like on tour sometimes, and I'll go to somebody's house, who, you know, and, and a lot of times I'm playing with, you know, either people putting on shows or just with and you know they tend to be younger and it's like you go look at their tape collection and go who the fuck with these people you know there's a whole cell it's a whole wall of stuff and i'll pick out four people i know and it's like wow this is really cool (laughs) 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 i don't know anybody here that's great man nice (laughs)
0: but you helped contribute to and and really start that i mean 1984 for starting a label is is very early for this kind of stuff and to be involved in getting this stuff out there and the wide breadth of artists you did i mean x-ray pop and ramla on the same label don't necessarily make sense these days but th- amongst all the other wonderful things you put out there seem to really be no boundaries uh, was there anything from those days that you that you released or put out that you feel like hasn't really gotten its due or attention in the sort of modern day anything that's still like under the radar and hasn't been rediscovered with this sort of emphasis on the cassette culture of the 80s well for uh
1: well to go back what uh the the you know the uh the Destin to Decay, Belial, Ramla. that stuff actually all came from Trevor, I believe. You know, so, so for instance, those, comp, those, those comps and the Ramla stuff that was given to me again, sort of like the uh, Japanese one where like I was dealing with him. So I didn't necessarily curate that, but it's like, do you want to do this? Sure. Yeah. You know, the and guy, the he, he, nails, cool.
3: nails of Christ too. Yeah. Classic.
1: yeah. You know, yeah. So that was, you know, you know so yeah, he, you know, when I was doing his stuff and then he sent me the other things like, oh, you want to put this out? Yeah, man, I love that. Oh, Nails of Christ, those tapes are great, man. So, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Dark out of the souls. Like, that's one of the, you know, that's the one that people like to buy now. So we're, you know, get so I get to hear that a fair amount because with the one <laughs> dubbing deck and it's uh, in my system. <laughs> the one guy, okay, so the one guy in particular, well, you know, the person that always sticks out to me is uh, Gregor Jamrowski, who's up in, uh, I actually was in contact with him recently. He was in, he was in the uh, Seattle Olympia area. And he played bass clarinet, and he's actually early. This is about three or four tapes: vagabondage, uh, Billy Club Puppet, really early, uh, up to like uh, I think uh, a couple like in the 30s or 40s. There, uh, Jam Roski, Calgano, Gregor. I he was dry; his stuff was dry. But I really liked. It was just sort of this maybe early interest in wasn't contemporary classical, but it was just sort of. I don't know if anyone's ever really gotten into him very much. I always liked his stuff and I did hear from him recently. He was in Japan coming back to the States at some point and maybe he was going to give me something for Sound of Pig or, or Pogus for like a digital release. Uh, that's the one that always sort of weirdly, you know, is like, that's the guy. I always just liked that for some reason. It was just there, you know, and, <laughs> you know, everyone else is, uh, you know, they're around or not and uh, it's hard to say, you know, it's like, there's stuff I have no, and again, I've been out of touch with so many of those people for so long that, like, I have no clue what anyone's doing. And, you know, every once in a while, someone pops up and it's like, oh, you know, oh, you know well, I, he must have gotten some due, Croiners. You know, the Croiner stuff? W- w- was Jimmy, listening to, to like, that
3: on the cause and effect comp earlier today, actually.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Croiners, you know, I don't know if he ever got enough of his due, but uh, his stuff was always great, man. And actually, uh, what's his name? Uh, speaking about Tribe before, he's going to do the, the Deaf Lions you know the def La- know def lions no. no. ts vickers uh he had some stuff out and is a uh, he's not doing, he's not reissuing mine but I, I think him with pbk were putting out so he was a uh, def lions would almost be not quite Kroiner's territory but look him up he's done really interesting work so and no one knows where he is so i think they're planning on a cd release of his stuff um and so it's with pbk curating with uh, max and it's so yeah his stuff is really interesting so if he you get a chance
3: Max is starting really? to put, out, or did put out some of that Ken Klinger stuff that yeah, you Ken, also yeah, put Ken. out as well.
1: Ken, well Ken you have, is great.
3: And, and you were in contact with him back then as well. I imagine. Cause yeah, you did yeah, a yeah, tape and, that was like a comp of stuff, right?
1: Yeah. He put a comp of his, like uh like the best of Ken Klinger stuff. And uh, I think there was two tapes. There was that. And you no, know, the, the brain's going, it was two, there was two, there was the Ken Klinger one and there was another, uh, project he had. They were like right next to each other in the catalog there. So uh yeah, I've actually been in touch with Ken a couple times. He was in I think he's still in Pittsburgh or in that area, but he had contacted me a few years ago at one point. So uh yeah Ken you know there was that one track in particular that like was always such a great I don't know if you ever heard that one. It, I forget what it's called, but it just Betsy, you know, it's it's a little it's one of his talking things and it's about the girl who got her French horn at Tuba and played music and you know, people hated it, and it was like, "Oh, perfect!" And so it was just—it was, was like a perfect story of like, you know, or people couldn't tell that like she didn't know what she was doing, and it was the perfect way to like start radio shows. If you're doing a radio show, like, yeah, that's, that's that explains that's it all. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, if I can figure out what the name of it, I'll try to send you the link or something. But like, you know, but yeah, I was just looking at Max's, you know, uh, you know, uh, Bandcamp site the other day, going, "Oh yeah, he's releasing all this Ken klinger stuff. Cool." Because Ken, if you ever get CDRs, somebody sent me a bunch of Ken's CDRs, a friend of mine. I was getting rid of it. And be careful if you put those in your car radio. Those might those look like they yeah. might be the same yeah. kind of thing that's gonna fall yeah. apart there. So.
0: so this uh this cassette culture sound of pig music 84 to 90 book is fantastic. It's it's such a nice Way to be able to see an archive of the history of a label it's one of those things we actually don 't get a, a picture of too often. Uh, how did this all come about? I know uh, will Cameron put this together
1: Yeah, so I know will through uh, deep listening. I worked for a number of years for Pauline Oliveros and Deep listening. And I met Will through there, and then will was apparently working for he did some stuff with Angus Macleese or he released some of Angus's stuff, and he's sort of an archival kind of guy and he want and he's been into like cassette stuff and so he wanted to he was. He wanted to be into publishing, and he was into cassettes, and so he wanted to put this together. And he came up one day, and you know, and the original, and a matter of fact, the original, the original version of the thing was going to be really great. I mean, this is really nice. He was going to be, uh, oh, the four color. I forget what the process is, but it was gonna be like almost like hand, like you know, you know, hand printed four color shit, and so mm-hmm. it was really looking beautiful. And then it got to be too much work, and so. Uh, Will approach me. We decided to do it. I mean, he took all the SOP covers. He went and he scanned them. He made the copies. You know, it's it's another one of those labors of love of uh, and putting them together and gluing the whole stuff.
0: That feeling of satisfaction when you assemble the tapes, you you make the covers, you cut it out, you dub the tapes and you put it all together yes. and you got a stack of them there. I mean, you must've been addicted to that doing 301 releases oh, yes. over oh, this that period.
1: Was, that was so much fun, man. Like, and it was just like the production. As a matter of fact, I had a, it was funny, I had the one the job where I used to dub stuff and it was, a, it was a, it was a textile business. So the guy made, the business was pillowcase, made pillow protectors. It wasn't pillowcases. It was the stuff. <laughs> so, so it was a kind of business that was going out and it was kind of slow. And so, I at one point, you know, and kind of like you know, business a little tight, you know. At one point, I offered to him my boss, and I worked there with like it was five people in the company. My boss, my father worked there, and two other people. I said, "How about if I just work four days a week?" You know, and uh, you know, and and you cut my salary enough that you know, because I whatever are, the situation was. I spent those were my Mondays. My Mondays were off we like working on tapes. I spent the entire day just cutting covers and you know putting crap together. And then yeah. and then and then I had friends who would like know most my day off, and they'd call me, and I would just not answer the phone because <laughs> I'm working. I got, <laughs> I, got, I got I got business to take care. Of. I got cassette. I got people to write letters to. I got you know I gotta you know I gotta put packages together, man. It's business. Don't oh, yeah. be fucking calling me here, man. Jeez. <laughs> This is my day to work. You know, so I just yeah, $8 so those dollars are dollars like,
2: cash in the mail.
1: <laughs> well, you know, how many tapes you know, I mean, you're putting out packages, or, you know, because yeah. there'd be 25, 30 packages a week easily going out and, you know, oh, 35, yeah. 40 packages coming back every week. And it's like, you know, of new stuff, not return mail. So I was like, oh, <laughs> uh, that was, yeah, that was, fun. that was like just the, you know, it was, it was your homemade production. It was like, it was fun. CDs, you know, when I went to the CDs, it was with the label, it made more sense, you know, in terms of, you know, what I was doing with Pogus, but, you know, there was that missing, you know, here, then you just go to a plant and they send you a thousand or five hundred CDs and it's just, and they're all, you know, and of course they're all the same and it's great and I didn't have the time to have, the job situation, I didn't actually have the time to cut tapes and stuff, but yeah, you miss something, man. It's like, this is tactile, you know, playing with cassettes and, you know, that's the other thing. When you get old, I'm going to warn you guys now, work on your fingers because when tapes start breaking, when you're... (laughs) 30 and 40 you can still fix them. When you're getting old and you can't see them anymore and you can't, even your fingers like don't quite work. It's like, I helped a friend of mine fix a tape recently. It took two of us to do it. You know, you're, you hold that and you'll do this and you turn it you the, the, the pencils and so just, you know, keep stay together because, you know, you guys are going to need each other when you get older. Yeah, like, exactly. Honey, yes. where's your glasses? Where's the magnifying glass? Can you touch that? I'm just yeah. warning you. So, <laughs> Not the one bad thing. <laughs> (laughs)
0: so al when when you're gonna do a new uh hands to tape or an if bona tape or whatever it is that would come into you and you would be sitting down to make that you've got the cover ready and you got the master done what would you make 20 would you make 50 how many copies would you make at one time like to when you were going to put it in your catalog when you're going to let people know it existed and how many releases would you do at a time
1: Oh, uh, just kind of, they came along. It wasn't like I didn't have a release schedule, It was just like, as things came in, I just start, I do them. So I probably do, I, you know, I probably promised every artist 10, 15, 20 copies. So, you know, right away, you just dubbing in a batch. So I would probably do 30 or 40 right away. Just because, you know, there's 10 or 15 to send to the artist. And then, you know, there's the zines and the people you're trading with. So yeah, it's probably easy, like 30, 40 right away. And then I would just keep, you know, so basically I just be dubbing the new ones. And again, it was, it was probably see if I did sound a pig from 84 to 90, there's 300 releases. What is that? That really is almost one every week or two on an yeah, average. So, yeah, I mean, so yeah. probably every week I was just doubling. you know, it was like doubling the old ones, doubling the new ones. Uh, Got to get the stuff out there, you know. Uh, how so,
0: often and how are you announcing the new releases?
1: there would be occasional catalog updates, you know, so like the, with the little blurbs that have maybe six or eight, I mean, you know, Used occasional ad in a magazine or something, but it was mostly just sending them, you know, you send them to Hal and you send them to Sound Choice and whatever, whoever zines were writing about your stuff and you just sent it to them and maybe a few radio people. And, you know, it wasn't like I sent the big, you know, that would have been prohibitive. You know, I mean, mail was still pretty cheap back then, but still, you know, I wasn't sending out. I know never been very good about like mailing lists and other, so he just sent it out and people found out about it. You know, it's like, you know, word of mouth was pretty good. <laughs> Overall, you know, it's like Yeah, yeah. Well, it and seems you know, like that,
0: you were pretty organized too. I mean, three hundred and one releases and you kept them in print for the duration of the label. So how did you how did wow. you file all that?
1: <laughs> well, I still got my I have a file cabinet with just, you know, all the covers are in there and it was like, you know, it's three file cabinet with three drawers full of that stuff and um I must I you know, I uh I just had a box of the cassette masters and they were just there and you know, you know, there was an apartment and there was space and you just had the cassettes and you know It'll, there's some of those great plastic containers with, like, 30 cassettes, and, you know, you can get... There's 10 of them. I mean, I still have the cassette masters there, and I have the digital masters that I made of whichever ones I, I transferred, and, you know, you just did them. And, you know, and this, and this thing, new ones came out, you kind of wound down doing the old one unless someone wanted them. And that was the other thing. You know, if someone bought a tape or you set a tape, you sent out a flyer about, like, the new tapes, and so people heard.
3: So <laughs> what do you have planned for this year? Do you have shows coming up? What's your... what Now that things are opening back up ish, as I like to say, uh, do you, have stuff, yeah, do, do you have stuff lined up? Or are you still kind of waiting to see what, 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 what's going on?
1: Actually things. Yeah. I got, a few things just starting. So I'm doing, uh, in Brooklyn, uh, my friend, ah, actually he's a, another cassette, a old cassette or Dan Joseph who's out of, uh, his stuff. Uh, he's doing a mus- a series called musical ecologies in Brooklyn. So I'm playing that in uh, St. Patrick's day uh cool. with walter up in uh, the lowell area we got a couple of gigs in april easter weekend and then uh, jason Kahn is coming in from uh, switzerland and he's doing a tour and i'm playing with him in uh june up in like the kingston area so you know and then with any luck you know that's how i mean i haven't planned any tours in a couple of years even before this anyway so yeah. as things just pop up i start taking gigs so and you know everyone's still kind of you know, when the weather gets nice in these areas, you know, you guys in California, it's not so bad. But you know, in the New York area, it's like when people are just wanting to do outside shows, it's just like eh, you got to wait till the weather gets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a window. There's yeah. a window,
3: and and with your stuff now, is it under your name or ifwana, or do you do you go back and forth?
1: Well, I've been trying to put the if Buana sort of to bed, but you know, just because. You know, it's funny. I forget who it was. Oh, it was uh, it was Eric uh, Lanzalata years ago. Said, mm. "Why are you still using Ifwana? Like, you should just use your name." And it's like, yeah, you know. But people don't. You know, people. There was there was actually a real split when I stopped playing and I came back and I started playing with a more, again, in a more contemporary classical-ish scene. I suppose concerts opposed to gigs, whatever the fuck that would be. Uh there was a lot of people who you know started knowing me as me and not who the hell Ifwana was. So I find myself in this really weird spot of, "Who are you?" So if someone wants to book it as if one, they think that's going to sell more tickets that yeah, do that, otherwise I try to do my name now. So, you know, and, and the really odd part is the, you'd almost think that the, the improv stuff should be me and the composed stuff. Oh, I can never even figure out who I am anymore. When I put things out, now I, I now release things as if, as Al Margolis, but like, for instance, when, uh, when uh, Max does that old cassette, we'll just do it as if one, cause that's what it was. But you right. know, it's like, and then I did actually have one problem, I did one CD of mine, and I kind of was trying to, like, move my name a little bit. It was, uh, I think I had it as the uh, El Margolis and If Buana, and I actually had someone write me, oh, which are the If Buana tracks, and which are the El Margolis tracks? And that was the day I just kind of ah, fuck, I got no clue, dude, man. It's like, I don't even know what to tell you anymore. It's like, so. No.
0: Well, and I I love the name If Buana. It's... Uh, always been really confusing to me which i feel like pairs well with the sounds and kind of variety of stuff you you put in there but just now reading the book uh i learned what <laughs> you <know. If> <laughs> comes from yes mm-hmm. and i it uh it makes me even happier <laughs> okay,
1: okay. Yes. are you a fan are you a fan yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I i love it's it more,
0: I really, it's I, more it's
2: more l- for us because we are amused yeah
0: <laughs> I, I love it
3: i think that's so great it's funny but, but we are not we amused. Not
1: amused. <laughs> so, I've, wow. so over the years, I've had I've had friends who are writers tell me it's really annoying to write about if Juana. I mean, that's a, of because comma? of the comma, you know, when they're trying to so that you know. That's It also it, funny. Also, it also it also throws off the digital uh, the freak, you know the uh, the digital databases can't handle it because then it becomes if. But I was in I was on tour. Oh right, and, so, <laughs> that's, you know, so that's, that's another one that's yeah. screws up. And then we I really had a funny thing. We did a the last tour was out in. Uh, uh, in, we're in Poland with Crank Surgeon and uh, with uh, Emerge Sasha uh, you know Sasha Staddlemeyer attenuation circuits label out of no, but, but we we love, love Crank we're, we, ah, we love him the bad, so much so, yeah. we did this, so we did this tour uh, we're in Warsaw and go out to the uh, town I think it's called Bwania and it turns out that the double L or that thing with that cross you know that mm-hmm. the letter yeah. that's a bois. so the next time I go to Poland it's going to be if Bwania <laughs> The pronunciation is <laughs> Wanya. is like so. The town is Wanya, so it's gonna be if Wanya for specifically for Poland. <laughs> if I do that. So. Yeah,
3: we you know we, we really do love Crank. Do you ever use any of his any devices. of his devices that he uh yeah he makes? matter of
1: fact when I saw him because he had just mo- they had just moved back to name. Uh, yeah, Maine mm-hmm. ma- yeah yeah so uh, yeah when I was up there uh, this past summer I got to see him he gave me one of his uh you know the ones with a almost looks like you're gonna jump your car the contact mic on <laughs> yeah. yes. the jumper like yeah that's a great freaking thing so uh that's i love nice. crank stuff i love crank man you know so it was like man's the best and he makes such lovely things and so much fun to tour with Is the like, guy's a trip so
3: <laughs> oh no we're we're mm-hmm. we're definitely jealous that he's back out there it was it was great getting to see him play out here a oh bunch. nice it was yes. really nice one of the last times we saw him he did a, it was gx's birthday show and he ah. did a great set where he was Punching holes and then he <laughs> mailed he punching holes in in paper and then ma- and then had envelopes written out to GX and he mailed them like at, <laughs> that was the performances mm-hmm. punching nice. the holes doing putting him in the envelope with the stamp and then mailing them to yeah. GX you know it's, it's beautiful right I mean that's 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 everything right that's everything. Man. <laughs> Man, ow, this is so cool I talking to you. This is like so it. this is so exciting for us. This oh, has been someone that a lot of people uh, have asked us. You got you got it real, Santa Pig. You know, it's so important and, and really, yeah. you know, I I know you said you sort of moved in different directions starting at the end of the 90s, but it really was the foundation for so much of where we came into things from you know, Triple R and and self abuse and and Mother Savage was it was the extension of what you guys were starting with Sound of Pig and Big Body Parts and and then there's you know labels like Band Production that that you know did can you know kept mm-hmm. kept yep, the bridge yep. going, so it's it's just so huge for us to talk to one of the true uh, pioneers of underground cassettes and oh, underground and
1: sound so i'm glad i'm glad, was, I'm, glad uh, I'm glad we did something i'm glad we caused trouble <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, yes. you know it, like, it, all you folks man, like a, a great to i no, appreciate it I mean, you know it's really nice to like you know to to hear when people that you know you did stuff that like people got shit and like it, 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 yeah. it's going on and like you know it's like that you know it is fun and kind of going up and people like i mean meeting people and go oh you're you know because, you know, you don't think about it sometimes. And then, like, when people come out and doing stuff and you're hearing things and people know it, it's like, you know, not that you ever felt like you were in a void, but, you know, again, there's the generation that knows and has learned and keeps going. And, you know, and that's, you know, and it's just, it's just, it's just the music. It's just about, you know, you know, I was looking at just a rebellion. Like, you know, you're doing something that is just not mainstream. So you're already like a rebel with whatever cause without a cause. And so just keep, you know, just got to keep at it. You know, it's like. You know, no one wants this shit. No one Under, cares. Underground for music. everybody.
2: Uh, <laughs> underground, <laughs> yeah,
1: underground forever. It's just well,
2: you yeah, just that. that's the, great.
0: Again, to reference the book, the back of the book has uh, some words by you that I, I really love. And I'm actually going to read your words back to you now because I think it's okay. important for our listeners to hear. Uh, that's one of the reasons behind the existence of Sound of Pig, and particularly compilations, to help the artist be heard by others. It's a good feeling when someone lets me know that because they appeared on one of my tapes, someone contacted them or came to see them. If that happens, I've been successful, and uh, you've been very successful, Al. We yeah. really, yeah. really appreciate it. Yes,
1: muff, muff. thank you, guys, man. I really appreciate that. So it's good. It's always lovely to hear. And so thanks, and glad glad we could do the show. Glad we hooked up, you know. And Heck uh, yeah, absolutely.
3: <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe someday in the future we'll, we'll we'll get to sit down in person and hang out and listen. Oh, to that'd, tapes be and, and, that'd be and do great. That'd be
2: great. And I'm glad you're still getting into trouble. It's great.
3: Heck yeah, like,
1: we're, tr- we're trying. <laughs> so I, I, I keep the trouble going. I like that. Yes. So. <laughs>
0: awesome. Thank you so much, Al. This is this is amazing.
1: Yes. Well, Thank you guys as well. Really pleasure to do this show. Pleasure to meet you.
2: You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 17 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noiseextra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noiseextra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.